solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. So mythology, um, did you look at anything to prepare for this? I did. Well, I got access to a bunch of new journals like this week. So I looked in those and found nothing. Um, but I made a list of like different questions or like things to like just ask about or like speculate about because obviously we'll never know <laughs> with mythology. We weren't there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then like a general sort of update on all of the names, because it's one of those things where as soon as I look at it, I'm like, oh yeah. And then the second I turn it off, can't remember anything about <laughs> who that was. Yeah. Especially when, um, the farther back in time you go and the more complicated the mythology is, the more they kind of run together. Um, and I tried to find a bunch of academic articles about the psychology of mythology. And 99% of what I found were Freudian and Jungian psychoanalyses of mythology not a general why do people have a psychological disposition to create myths right that's more of what i was looking for yeah there is a whole field around the psychology of religion which is obviously a more accessible field because people who are religious are alive today and you can talk to them um so i assume that a lot of that would apply but you don't really know because our society shapes our relationship with religion so much that like you know the reason that we had mythology was to explain things we couldn't explain in a way that made sense and also a lot of times give you some way to influence these greater events like you know doing sacrifices in order to have a good crop or certain rituals so that the nile would flood and you'd have fertile soil again so we don't really have those issues with greater nature today. Um, we just get food from the grocery store. It's not a big deal. Um, so I'm assuming that there would be a lot of differences if you could actually talk to someone, you know, from ancient Egypt. <laughs> like, why yeah. do you worship these people? They would have a different, you know, reasoning for why. Well, a couple things. And then I, I have a few things bookmarked in a couple books that I've both been reading. <laughs> and have uh on hand that i that i pulled up for this um first thing is we have to remember that the farther back in time you go the more all the various different facets of culture overlap yeah right so just going 250 years ago to the founding of the united states um it's extraordinarily difficult to disentangle politics and religion Right. They, they, they kind of went hand in hand. That's how a lot of people in the colonial times organized themselves morally is through a religious framework and understanding of the world. And it's those moral, the 
religiously informed moral structures that gave rise to their political beliefs, right? So going back to Egypt or something like that, ancient Rome is another example. Um, the overlap between myths and religion are almost totalizing, mm -hmm. right? Um, second thing, I think here would be a good time to introduce a working definition for myth as we're going to use it and feel free to modify or add any qualifiers or qualia to, to this if you think it needs to be. But really simple, I would say that myths are the stories that human beings tell themselves about themselves. Now we can expand that out, right, to include how we understand we fit in reality or the cosmos or, you know, whatever grander scheme terms you want to use. Yeah, I'm thinking, for me, I feel like a necessary part of a mythology is like there's another realm different from Earth that exists or like that you talk about that as well and like kind of the relationship between those two because i'm struggling to think of a mythology that doesn't have some type of special world that we don't have access to here but like you either get it when you die or you can you know do a ritual and access it something like that um or is that not a necessary part i don't think it would be a necessary part we i mean we have In um, the culture of the United States, we have the mythology of how our country was founded. And it's plastered all over D.C. through all of our history books and paintings and poems and songs. Um, some of the most famous of which would be like the apotheosis of George Washington. Right. This almost fabricated understanding this artificial understanding of this real person that has been told and retold and modified over so many generations that it's almost almost wholly incorrect but is still a foundational corner of our culture in how we understand ourselves in the world today. Okay. So you would say a mythology could have, oh, didn't think about the more recent examples or things that weren't religious. Yeah, I don't, I mean, and, and this is, this is why I mentioned earlier that it gets difficult to disentangle these things. Um, because when you have like a pre-scientific society like Rome or Egypt that has to use, in so many words, these stories to rationalize why the world works the way it does and why people work the way they do. And then you transition to a post-scientific society where we can use 
for lack of better terms, the myths of science to explain those. And it doesn't have to feel supernatural. Although talk to anybody about some of the particulars of quantum physics and it's going to feel pretty damn supernatural, right? Um, and then like what you're left with then, if if we dissolve the barriers between those two and just look at the commonalities between the pre-scientific and the post-scientific cultures and societies and their myths, what you have then are, I would say then that the myths are the methods that those people use to understand themselves. Right. And so this, this might be a good time to, to bring up this. I've been reading um, SPQR by Mary Beard, um, Ancient Rome. And in it, she talks about, I mean, it's Ancient Rome, it's primarily the Republic. Um, but I really like how she mentions multiple times that the founding myths of Rome were, it's not like someone in you know 750 bc came up with this great idea here's how we're going to tell everybody that rome was founded it was like every generation put their new spin on that story and they projected their understanding of their current situation backwards in time to that origin point and that's what modified that origin story to meet them where they were instead of modifying their culture to meet the or or, um, original origin story um there's two quick pages here i want to read hopefully it'll it'll get to it this is from chapter two uh, according to one roman tradition the temple of jupiter where cicero harangued catiline on 8 november 63 bce had been established seven centuries earlier by romulus rome's founding father romulus and the new citizens of this of his tiny community were fighting their neighbors a people known as the sabines probably mispronouncing that on the site that later became the forum we've been there the political center of Cicero's Rome. Things were going badly for the Romans and they had been driven to retreat. As a last attempt to snatch victory, Romulus prayed to the god Jupiter. Not just Jupiter, in fact, but to Jupiter's stator, Jupiter who holds men firm, right, to be static. He would build a temple in thanks, Romulus promised the god, if only the Romans would resist the temptation to run for it and stand their ground against the enemy. They did, and the temple of Jupiter's stator was erected on that very spot, the first in a long series of shrines and temples in the city built to commemorate divine help in securing military victory for Rome. That at least was the story told by Livy, Livy, I don't know how you pronounce that, and several other Roman writers. Archaeologists have never managed firmly to identify any remains of this temple, which must in any case have been much rebuilt by Cicero's time, especially if its origins really did go back to the beginning of Rome. But there can be no doubt that when he chose to summon the Senate to meet there, Cicero knew exactly what he was doing. He had the precedent of Romulus in mind and was using the location to make a point. He wanted to keep the Romans steadfast, in parentheses, to hold them firm, in the face of their new enemy, Catiline. In fact, he said almost exactly that at the end of his speech when, no doubt gesturing to the statue of the god, he appealed to Jupiter's stator and reminded his, reminded his audience of the foundation of the temple. 
and this is Cicero speaking, quote, you, Jupiter, who were established by Romulus in the same year as the city itself, the god who, we rightly say, holds firm the city and the empire, you will keep this man and his gang away from your temple and the temples of the other gods, from the houses of this city and its walls, from the lives and fortunes of all the citizens of Rome, end quote. The implication that Cicero was casting himself as a new Romulus was not lost on the Romans of his day, and the connection could rebound. Some people used it as an, another excuse to sneer at his small-town origins by calling him the Romulus of Arpinum. This was a classic Roman appeal to the founding fathers, to the stirring tales of early Rome, and to the moment when the city name came into being. Even now, the image of a wolf suckling the baby Romulus and his twin brother Remus signals the origins of Rome. The famous bronze statue of the scene is one of the most copied and instantly recognizable works of Roman art, illustrated on thousands of souvenir postcards, tea towels, ashtrays, and fridge magnets, and plastered all over the modern city as the emblem of Roma Football Club. Because this image is so familiar, it is easy to take the story of Romulus and Remus, or Remus and Romulus, to give them their usual Roman order, rather too much for granted and to forget that it is one of the oddest, quote, historical legends, unquote, of any city's foundation at any period anywhere in the world. And myth or legend, it certainly is, even though Romans assumed that it was, in broad terms, history. The wolf's nurturing of the twins is such a strange episode in a very peculiar tale that even ancient writers sometimes showed a healthy skepticism about the appearance of a conveniently lactating animal to suckle the pair of abandoned babies right on cue. The rest of the narrative is an extraordinary mixture of puzzling details. Not only the unusual idea of having two founders, Romulus and Remus, but also a series of deadly, unheroic elements from murder through rape and abduction to the bulk of Rome's first citizens being criminals and runaways. These unsavory as aspects have so struck some modern historians that they have suggested that the whole story must have been concocted as a form of anti-Roman propaganda by Rome's enemies and victims, threatened by aggressive Roman expansion. That is an over-ingenious, not to say desperate, attempt to explain the oddities of the tale, and it misses the most important point. Wherever and whenever it originated, Roman writers never stopped telling, retelling, and intensely debating the story of Romulus and Remus. There was more at stake in this than just the question of how the city first took shape. As they crammed into Romulus's old temple to listen to the new Romulus of Arpinum, she's referring to Cicero there, those senators would have been well aware that the foundation story raised even bigger questions of what it was to be Roman of what special characteristics defined the Roman people, and, no less pressing, of what flaws and failings they had inherited from their ancestors. To understand the ancient Romans, it is necessary to understand where they believed they came from, and to think through the significance of the story of Romulus and Remus, and of the main themes, subtleties, and ambiguities in other foundational stories. For the twins were not the only candidates for being the first Romans. Throughout most of Roman history, the figure of the Trojan hero Aeneas, who fled to Italy to establish Rome as the new Troy, bulked large too. And no less important is to try to see what might lie behind these stories. Where did Rome begin is a question that has proved almost as seductive and teasing for modern scholars as for their ancient predecessors. Archaeology offers a sketch of earliest Rome very different from that of the Roman myths. It is a surprising one. 
often puzzling and controversial. Even the famous bronze wolf is keenly debated. Is it, as has usually been thought, one of the earliest works of Roman art to survive? Or is it, as recent scientific analysis has suggested, really a masterpiece of the Middle Ages? In any case, excavations under the modern city over the past hundred years or so have uncovered a few traces from maybe as far back as 1000 BCE of the tiny village on the River Tiber that eventually became Cicero's Rome. Here's my key takeaways, or here are my key takeaways, let's be grammatically correct here, of that excerpt from SPQR by Mary Beard. Biggest thing, the founding myths of Rome are narratives for how the Romans understood where they came from and what it means to be Roman. Also that every generation added their own understanding based on their own current historical times to those origin stories. Right, meaning that the contemporary people had a hand in crafting their quote-unquote historical mythology to meet their current contexts. Here's an example. Um, she mentioned the Trojan hero Aeneas, one of the alternative founding stories of Rome is that Aeneas fled Troy during its fall and eventually wound up kind of like an Odyssey style expedition, wound up in Italy and founded Rome. That is awfully convenient for a republic and empire that was hell-bent and determined on justifying their aggressive actions towards the rest of the Mediterranean world, right? If you are, and there's a lot of parallels that can be brought up here with, with the United States as well, but that might be a different conversation for a different time. Um, if you are a nation populated by immigrants, people that by necessity had to come from a different land to stake a claim here and be successful, then any cultural hangups you would have about going to another person's land and politically dominating them go down, right? So we can, we can look at the story of Aeneas and that understanding of a nation of non-native-born peoples that politically dominate the rest of the Mediterranean world as being projected backwards in time, right? Maybe, maybe the earliest accounts of the Aeneas story predate that interpretation, but those interpretations post-date that original story and post hoc get applied to justify the unique socio-political context that that culture arose in. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, because it's not easy to, you know, stay away from your home and family and like presumably beautiful estate that you have in Italy to go conquer Germany for no reason. We have to come up with a reason. You couldn't just tolerate that much. Um, yeah, just being away from that for so long or giving that much of a chunk of your life to something like violence that the people there obviously don't want. Um, and they knew you were coming and then you get there and you conquer them and you start building Roman things everywhere. And they're using your money now and they're making bathhouses and they're, you're making a giant villa there. And to have, I think what's interesting to me about the origin story of Rome alone is it's very specific which is good for romans because it is very othering because if you have a creation story for the entire world that would not be othering so you couldn't justify you couldn't very easily justify going all the way to england to go turn those guys into romans too so having an origin story just for that is specific to only you guys I see why they were so dedicated to conquering in, you know, ways that really, you know, not many empires did that um, amount of work and amount of needless war just to spread that. So I'm thinking like if they had a true, because it's specific to Rome is why that works so well for them. Well, in, in two things. So if you read the historical accounts from the Romans themselves, such as the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar, um, predominantly, at least through the era of the Republic, the Romans themselves cast their wars of aggression as wars of defense. Right. And, and they can... Because even the Romulus and Remus story and the the story of Aeneas, right? They had to go on the offensive to secure the area so they could be at peace, right? And and that's how they approached much of their geopolitical situations, at least militarily, right? They would invade Gaul. Because there was the threat of a Gallic invasion coming down from the north. Right. And so, like, you know, the best defense is a good offense type of strategy. The other thing, and I'm going to disagree with you here on the othering aspect of this, and, and hopefully I, I can explain why. Um, the story of Aeneas, the myth of Aeneas as the founding story of Rome is particularly interesting because if what it means to be Roman means to apply a specific culture, not to be a... That means anybody can participate. And we see this through the years of the Republic, at least. There were continuous expansions as to who would be allowed to apply for Roman citizenship. So yes, the Romes would go and... The Romans would make it to Britain and conquer areas up there. But then you could have a North African man 
enlist in the Roman legions, get stationed in Britain, earn his citizenship, marry a, a British pagan woman, she could become a Roman citizen by default then. And they're participating in this greater idea of what it means to be Roman. And it's not ethnocentric. Which, and that's that's one of the biggest overlaps I see between the Roman story and, and the United States story is that's kind of how the United States, at least in theory, is supposed to operate, right? We have a set of these cultural and political values that it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. You can still participate in those. And it doesn't, shouldn't at least, diminish who you are and where you come from, but add as an extra layer of garnish on top. Right. I think that that makes, or like that sort of inoculation would occur. Is that the right word? I don't think that's the right word. The idea of like bringing someone into the circle um, happens regardless of what the origin story is for the whole world or just for your specific people. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't think that's... Uh, I don't think those two are mutually exclusive because if you have an origin story for the entire world, you're still converting people to that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and saying like, this is who made the world. He put the sun in the sky and that's the reason why, you know, and he's actually a Pharaoh. So, you know, you need to pay taxes to the Pharaoh or whatever they did. I don't think they paid taxes. They're all slaves. Um, but um, yeah. So I think that same type of, you know, join us, your life will be better. Here's a great example. This guy, you know, joined us and now he has a full estate and um, fountains and every, every, everything nice. And I do think that there are few places, obviously, that the Romans, you know, just like looted and then left worse than they found it. Oh, Carthage. Cough, cough. <laughs> a few places, because typically they went there and they put down legitimate roots and legitimate investment in, you know, well, obviously, whatever in order to fulfill like having a nice road so that when you go, it wasn't a horrible trip and you'd be able to stop and take a bath wherever you want. Um, but they, uh, you know, the infrastructure that they put in was, um, it was not hated by all of the natives um, or, you know, the most familiar I'm with is the English Roman time. Mm -hmm. They didn't hate it. You know, they all got married, they, it was fine. Um, they probably would have preferred to been able to practice their paganism and take a nice Roman bath, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, well, and, and that's, that's an interesting, interesting thing because there's evidence that suggests that upon special occasions, I'm trying to think of a fancy term for it, but I'm not going to be able to think of a fancy term for it, where local deities were over time included in the Roman pantheon. Mm -hmm. And Britain's a perfect example of that. There's a druidic female goddess that started becoming part of the standard decoration in the Roman baths in 
Britain. Right, meaning that this this local native deity became absorbed into the blob that was Roman culture. And instead of being like snuck in, became a prominent part of, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I think I think that's a good side by side anecdote to the relative social mobility that the unique context of the Roman Empire gave to people that they might not otherwise have. Now, a lot of that was at the expense of their known ways of life, right? So I'm, I'm not saying the grass is greener on the other side or that it was a quote-unquote fair trade. Um, it's apples and oranges. But it's not like it was... wholly detrimental and a damning prison sentence for anyone that happened to be caught in the way of the almost ever-expanding Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is completely different. So it sounds like for the Romans, it was almost a bottom-up mythology where the more people talked about it, the more that was accepted and okay, this is how it went versus I feel like with a mythology like Egypt, that was extremely top down and not necessarily a lot of grassroots operations adding to that or, you know, sneaking in. And I think part of that reason is because the, physical distance between all of the places in Rome made it difficult to keep everyone under your thumb well enough. So you just have to accept that things change like a game of telephone um, as much as you could versus maybe was there better information control in Egypt? I think there was because they had an extremely strict hierarchy of, you know, who's allowed to know this information, who's allowed to be a priest, who's um, in charge of this information was very, you knew who that guy was, where Rome yeah. was. But uh, I think, and, and I'm getting outside of my area of expertise and into deep waters here, but I think that, so like what you were mentioning about the grassroots type of thing makes sense in the Roman context. Because you also have to remember that when you're as short-lived as the Roman Republic was, and within the span of three or four generations, you have like 10 times the land mass and capital that you're in charge of as an empire now, which in terms of timelines for empires is like overnight um that's kind of by default how that works right you you, you could almost get a feel in in mary beard does a really good job of this in her book um and there's i forget who it is there's another book i'm reading too called the uh, the rubicon that's about that as well um 
it's going to bother me that I can't remember um, the historian's name, but that, that's neither here nor there. Um, what is here and there is that you can almost get a feel of the Roman culture trying to grapple with this understanding of what it means to be Roman when every generation, what it means to be Roman has changed because the empire has doubled in size or the type of government that it operates under has changed fundamentally, right? You go from a republic to an empire, a true empire. Um, and right, so looking at the story of Aeneas, the myth of Aeneas, it's only even Romulus and Remus, it's only 600 years later that Cicero is appealing to the values of Romanness as his Romans understood it found in those myths to try and help his political ends. Now, when we swap over to Egypt, um, things get a little bit different because Egypt is so remarkable. And I mean that in the literal sense of the term in almost every single way compared to almost any other nation state that we've seen in human history, right? It, depending on when you start the clock, the Egyptian empire is anywhere from three to 4,000 years old. So by the time we get to your, top down in position of culture and the mythology that corroborates that culture that grassroots process that rome operates under has been operating for maybe even 1500 years already and it's become ossified and almost fossilized and these peoples are clinging to those traditions because if those traditions change, they fundamentally change. Um, we're we're going to take our break here in about three minutes and 45 seconds. Um, so I don't want to get into it yet. But when we come back, I want to get into the story of the myth of Osiris. Because that does a really good job of explaining what I'm talking about here. Because even the Egyptians recognized that potential for cultures to fossilize and the detriment that arises from a culture in its death throes as it begins to fossilize. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Because Osiris is the pharaoh, is Osiris. Right? That's yes. the relationship between... Yes and no. So it's not as it's not as straightforward as like the origin stories or the the religious mythology of um, Persia, right? So like Babylon would have. Um, I'm hesitating now because I might be getting my cities and names mixed up, but it doesn't particularly matter much. What does matter is um, ancient Persians had the god Marduk, which was that divine representation of their king, their emperor, whatever their term for that person was. And to reflect that, every year, the king was expected to hold a ceremony 
where he humbled himself and prostrated himself in front of the image of Marduk to remind him that he has a job to do. Yes, it's good to be the king. It's nice to be at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. But with that comes a set of responsibilities for how you're supposed to run your empire and treat your people, right? Heavy is the head that wears the crown is, is the saying. And that saying literally means that you have responsibilities that no one else in your kingdom has. And if you don't do your job properly, then you are bastardizing what it means to be the king. Right. My, well, yeah, don't have much to add before the break. Okay. Well, we can go ahead and tap out now and then we'll get back. And I have the, uh, a section of the myth of Osiris in the book that I could do another guided reading for us. Yeah, this was the one, or Egypt was what I was really interested on because I feel like we have a lot of evidence from a really long time ago and that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, and it's fantastic. I just wanted to throw the Roman thing out there to set the stage for our understanding of mythology at large. Um, and to have that talk about how these peoples and cultures would project their understanding backwards in time into the mythologies and manipulate them intentionally or unintentionally is a different question to fit their current cultural context because the the egyptians rewrote their history like five or six major times through their through their career I, is what i want to say but i know that's wrong okay let's see what i have here myth of osiris This is so like this, a big guy. Yes and no. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but this is from a book called um, Egyptian Myths by George Hart. And he draws upon multiple different sources for this. Um, he looks at the pyramid texts on the coffins of courtiers in the Middle Kingdom and the stela of um, Amen Mos in the, that is currently in the Louvre Museum. He draws on the stela of Ikernofret from the Berlin Museum, a Ptolemaic papyrus that's also in the Berlin Museum, he used the papyrus of Chester Beatty the first um, from the Dublin Museum, and looks at the Shabaka Stone, the Middle Kingdom Ramesseum dramatic papyrus, and um, inscriptions on the Edfu Temple from the Ptolemaic Pyramid to piece together this story. Um, 
And here we go. The murder of Osiris. From the creation myth devised by the priests of Heliopolis, we can observe a clever link between the cosmic deities and the gods and goddesses who figure in the story of the transmission of kingship. Geb, the earth god, and Newt, the sky god, produced four children, Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephthys. By this genealogy, there is a descent from the sun god creator to the possessor of the throne of Egypt. Osiris was the firstborn of the offspring of Geb and Newt. His birthplace was near Memphis at Rosatau in the western desert necropolis. This spot was particularly apt for the birth of Osiris since his preeminent role is that of the god of the underworld in Rosatau or mouth of the passageways is the symbolic entrance into Osiris's nether realm. In Epitet, originally for a funerary deity at Abydos, which Osiris often carries, is Kentamenshu, or foremost of the Westerners, a title which similarly emphasizes Osiris's stat status as ruler of those buried in the desert cemeteries once their spirits hoped for access to the underworld. As the eldest son of Geb and Newt, Osiris inherited the right to govern the land of Egypt. In the traditions of kingship preserved in the New Kingdom papyrus, known as the Turin Royal Canon, Egypt in pre-dynastic times was under the rule of a succession of gods, Ta, Ra, Shu, Geb, Osiris, Seth, and Horus. Osiris's consort was his sister Isis, thus providing a divine prototype for marriage between full or half-brothers and sisters in the royal family. The prosperity of Egypt during his reign is conjured up in eloquent phraseology on the stela of Amenmos. In the Louvre Museum there, Osiris is described as commanding all resources and elements in a way that brings good fortune and abundance to the land. Remember, we were talking earlier about the king has responsibilities, right? Um, prosperity of Egypt is kind of blah, blah, blah. There, Osiris describes commanding all the resources and elements in a way that brings good fortune and abundance to the land, not to him. Through his power, the waters of New are kept under control. Favor favorable breezes <clears throat> blow from the north. Plants flourish, and all animal life follows a perfect pattern of procreation. Also, Osiris receives immense respect from other gods and governs the system of stars in the sky. Of his cult centers throughout Egypt, the mid-delta sanctuary of Jeddu, and his upper Egyptian temple at Abydos are paramount. His regalia consists of the crook and flail scepters, both of which are symbols of kingship, and tall plumed Atef crown described as sky-piercing. So like many stories throughout history, we begin with a benevolent and successful king and queen, Osiris and Isis, ruling in a golden age. This idyllic scene is now shattered by the usurpation of the throne by Seth, Osiris's antagonistic brother. Tradition maintained that Seth ripped himself from the womb, from the womb of Newt in Upper Egypt at Nakata, where his major temple in the south was later erected. Violence and chaos became attributes of Seth, but despite his bad press in the myth of kingship, we ought not to overlook the fact that occasions stand out when support for this god was strong. Certainly on present archaeological evidence, Seth is a god of greater antiquity than Osiris, meaning that the myth of Seth predates the myth of Osiris, which is interesting. We'll come back to that. Since we find the composite creature which represents him on the late pre-dynastic mesed of King Scorpion, a ruler of Upper Egypt in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. The Seth animal has a slightly crescent-shaped proboscis and two upright projections from the top of its head, and 
if represented in complete quadrupedic form rather than just the head on an anthropomorphic body, it has an erect forked tail. In the pyramid texts, there are tantalizing references to Osiris suffering a fatal attack from this creature. He's described as falling on his side on the riverbank at Nejit in the district of Abydos. His murder is confirmed by the grief displayed in the weeping of Isis. The spells painted on the coffins of courtiers in the Middle Kingdom identify the murderer of Osiris unequivocally as Seth and declare that he attacked Osiris in Gehesti and killed him by the river at Nejit. These sparse details reflect the horror held by the Egyptians of the assassination of the monarch and violent transfer of power. It was a theme not to be developed or dwelt upon. It is interesting to note that historically there are relatively few incidents of bloody coup d'etat during the first 2,000 years of dynastic Egypt. In fact, there are several inscriptions that try to suppress the idea that Osiris was murdered, although subsequent events do not make sense without his death. An example is the hymn on the stela of Amenos, Amenmos, where Osiris is portrayed as invincible, a slayer of foes, and crusher of conspirators, although a little later in the text, Isis is searching for his body. Similarly, the valuable inscription on the stela of a Kernofret in Berlin Museum reinterprets the event into a victory procession for the adherent of Osiris. The stela gives an insight into the rituals in honor of Osiris held at his major cult center in Abydos. A Kernofet was an official of King Senwarset, uh, commissioned by the pharaoh to organize the annual festival of Osiris at Abydos and adorn the sacred image of the god of gold. Dis uh, during the ceremonies, the statue of Osiris in the regalia of kingship, decked out with lapis lazuli, turquoise, and gold, was carried on the Neshmet boat. The ancient canine deity, Wepwawet, acted as the champion of Osiris during this procession. There follows the suppression of the assassination of Osiris. Uh, the Neshmet boat is symbolically attacked, but during the combat, it is the foes of Osiris who are killed by the river in Nejit. Illogically, the next stage of the ceremony is to conduct the funerary boat of Osiris to his tomb in the desert of Abydos at Pekar. Incidentally, this tomb was located towards the desert cliffs in the region called by the Arabs Um el-Gab, or Mother of Pots, from the vast quantity of pottery offered on the early dynastic royal monument that had become reinterpreted as the god's sepulchre. With Osiris dead, Seth becomes ruler of Egypt, with his sister Nephthys as his consort. However, the sympathies of Nephthys are with her sister Isis, who is distraught at the death of Osiris. Isis determines to use her immense magical powers to recover the body of Osiris and to resurrect it sufficiently to conceive a son to avenge the monstrous usurpation and murder. Tirelessly, she and Nephthys roam Egypt, lamenting Osiris until eventually his body is located at Abydos. Other cult centers claim to be the resting place of Osiris's body or parts of it, such as the Abatin on Biga Island, just south of the first cataract of the Nile at Aswan, or Heracleopolis, where the burial was held to be under the Neret tree. But it is at Abydos that we find the fullest documentation of the next episode of the myth. Therefore, let's go to the Shrine of the God, Soccer, in the Temple of King Seti I. At Abydos, this temple is renowned for the most exquisite reliefs to have survived in Egyptian art, primarily in the seven sanctuaries and in the suite of inner apartments dedicated to Osiris, Isis, and Horus. The Soccer Sanctuary has suffered severe damage, but two representations give explicit visual indications of the impregnation of Isis with the seed of Osiris. 
In the inscription of Amenmos, the goddess Isis discovers the body of Osiris, shades it with her wings. She could take the she could take the form of a kite, um, and creates the breath of life with her wings, so that Osiris revives from death and impregnates her. Similarly, on the walls of Abydos Temple, this act of procreation involves the magic of Isis and her transformation into a sparrow hawk to receive the seed of Osiris. One representation shows Isis and, by an anticipation, Horus at either end of the lion-headed bed of mummification. Osiris, whose putrefication has been halted by the skills of Isis, raises one arm to his head, which Isis is holding, and grasps his phallus in the other hand to stimulate it into orgasm. The other depiction follows on from this act, with Isis as the sparrow hawk pressing herself down on the phallus of Osiris. Osiris's role in the myth of kingship in Egypt is now completed. He descends into Duat, the underworld, and reigns there as lord of eternity. In Egyptian religious thought, it was not the earthly rule of Osiris that was significant, but the miracle of his resurrection from death, offering the hope of a continuity of existence for everyone in the underworld, where one of Osiris's titles proclaims him as ruler of the living. As can be seen, the main protagonist has become the goddess Isis, the hieroglyphs of whose name contain the symbol of the throne. The resulting child of Isis and Osiris is the hawk god Horus. His name means the far above one, derived from the imagery of the soaring hawk. Horus is a complex deity into whom have been amalgamated concepts not directly involved in the myth of kingship, the idea of the god as a vulnerable child or as the sky falcon whose eyes are the sun and moon. However, all diverse elements were skillfully woven into a tapestry, the sum total of whose different emphases was the god Horus with whom the sovereign of Egypt was identified. Let's unpack a little bit of that. that um, more graphic than I had ever heard. <laughs> right. So in it also left out a couple key parts of the common chain of events. So Osiris is the king married to Isis and for a variety of different reasons that a lot of sources don't agree on, um, Seth becomes jealous of Osiris and decides to hold a party. During that party, he presents a magnificent golden sarcophagus and says that anyone that can fit perfectly inside of it wins the solid gold sarcophagus. Knowing the dimensions of his brother Osiris beforehand and having built the sarcophagus specifically for him. Everyone else at the party tries. They don't fit. Osiris is like, eh, I'll give it a shot. I like gold. Fits perfectly in the sarcophagus. And Seth closes it, seals it, and tosses him into the Nile to drown. He floats down the Nile, dies, and becomes um, embedded in a tree, the tree that's referenced in the passage I just read. That is where Isis finds him. After the conception of Horus, Seth becomes angry and dismembers Osiris into, I think it's 12 different pieces and spreads him throughout Egypt, um, which is interesting, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But regardless, the deed has been done so to speak and horus is born 
and upon his maturity defeats his uncle and reclaims the throne of kingship of the Egyptian empire. Now, couple things, um, and I'm going to try and tackle these in a coherent order as it makes sense in my brain. If it seems like I'm bouncing around, I apologize. It's just how my brain works. Um, first things first, let's return to that idea of myths being retroactively adapted and understood, right? Um, so just that last little bit that I read about Horus is a perfect example. Um, before the myth of Osiris became canonized, Horus was a variety of different things. And that panoply of different things that Horus was slash is became grouped together under the umbrella of Horus as the new king, right? Similarly, Osiris is, you would think with their myth of kingship and all of the, the metaphorical symbols, which we'll get into in just a minute, that Osiris would be one of the first gods of the Egyptian pantheon, but he's not, right? They found depictions of Seth that predate any of the archaeological evidence that we found for depictions of Osiris, right? Which that in itself suggests that Seth was a deity, Osiris might have been a minor, a minor local deity, and it was the succession of that region into the Egyptian culture and their blending and fusing of those cultural elements together into this new greater myth that helped explain how they operated together then as opposed to a thousand years earlier. Right. right. To me, um, I think the Egyptian, like, it's very, very clear that this mythology was used to explain why it was used for power very explicitly like this is why the pharaoh gets all of these things this is why his priests are rich and famous and um so it would make sense that there would be some switches as needed for whoever was pharaoh or whoever's new line there was in order to keep it aligned with you know whatever that family's particular morals are and also explaining why things shift over time even though you know like yes we've been doing it this way all this time but now i kind of used to do it this way so we're going to introduce some new um or you know promote different aspects of the same story in perhaps a different light yeah and absolutely um and there's archaeological evidence of that as you can see successful pharaohs like the Ramseses in the Middle Kingdom breaking down and relocating the even ancient to them iconography of early kingdom temples into their new capital cities 
right? They didn't just build something brand new from scratch and be like, this is who we are now, right? They carried their past with them and modeled it in such a way as to demonstrate their current, for lack of better term, domination of that culture, right? Um, now, a, a point needs to be made here about social and cultural stability because what happens when you get a ruler that upends too much too quickly right um and we have a perfect example of that in king tutankhamun's father um I'm going to forget his name. His name will come back to me. Um, I'm, I'm on Google. Akhenaten. Akhenaten oh. is his name. Yeah. Um, because Tutankhamun's name was originally um, Tutankhaten, which um, is because Akhenaten, whose name means one with the Aten, changed Egypt's religious ceremonies to be monotheistic to an all-encompassing god he called the Aten, A-T-E-N, as opposed to their more polytheistic panoply of gods that could sporadically apply to the various different aspects of their life as they needed them. He went so far as to build a brand new um, capital city, relocated the seat of government there and it was so detrimental to the cultural cohesion of egypt that upon his death immediately everyone moved back from that capital city like it was literally only in occupation and use for like half of a generation and that's it um you can go back and you can see reliefs and statues of akhenaten that have been defaced Right, as the culture of Egypt grappled with how extreme of a change it was and how they were trying to deal with it and restabilize. And this is this is something that that I talk with my students about. Um because you know, teaching the civics class, we talk about the American Revolution. And what's remarkable about the about the American Revolution is not that we had a revolution, but it's that we managed to put the brakes on the revolution in enough time to restabilize. Yeah. Right, revolutions by definition are destabilizing, which continue right that it, it creates a negative feedback loop where that destabilization leads to further oppression and further inequities which leads to further destabilization and further revolt right just look at the french revolution it's a perfect example russian revolution perfect example right where the good intentions of the revolution require a certain destabilization in order for the new ideas to take hold but the new ideas can't ever efficiently take hold because it's been too thoroughly destabilized and there's too rocky of ground for there to be cultural cohesion right um now let's talk about the symbolism embedded in Os the, the myth of osiris um 
and then we'll talk about Pinocchio because the two are related. Um, huh. Right. So what what is what is the myth of Osiris at a metaphorical level? What what is it? What story does it tell? It tells a story of the original king that had gotten complacent and comfortable and old and static in his ways. Right. No longer using his office and position to do like the passage I read said to benefit the people and the land, but rather himself and how the success leading up to that creates a Cain and Abel style jealousy, which creates a destabilization. And it is the son of that old king with his new ideas and youthful vigor that comes back and restabilizes the region. Right. Now, if we abstract that out a little bit more, what story do we get? We get the story of the king that's too set in his ways that takes the revitalization of youth and new ideas with the wisdom of the old traditions to fuse those two things together to create what's necessary for that new generation of society to succeed right this is where it ties in with pinocchio because pinocchio is the same story at least hidden in it is elements of the same story right um towards the end of pinocchio when his dad geppetto gets eaten by the whale what does he do he doesn't change anything right if, if you watch the animated version and it goes down to the belly of the whale what's he doing he's still fishing he's still sailing Right. His patterns of behavior hasn't changed. He's clinging too tightly to his tradition as it was when he was growing up because it was successful, but it's outdated and necrotic to the current social situations. Right. It takes the interjection of the youth in vitality of Pinocchio to save him. And how does Pinocchio do that? He swims down, he gets eaten by the whale, and he uses Geppetto's ship to create a new ship that they can escape with. He doesn't destroy tradition entirely, but he takes the pieces of that tradition that are useful to the new social environment and reorganizes them in a way as to be functional. Same story. I would never have put that together. Um, but yeah, I see how like the like moralistic part, because um, that's not something that I usually think about with Egyptian mythology. I think because I'm kind of stuck on the idea that this was how the Pharaoh controlled his people and their thinking and got everyone on the same page. And so for me, the like main thing, the main purpose behind having Osiris be a very popular god was because that was the drive behind doing your daily work um, and earning enough money so that when you die, you can afford to be mummified. And if you had enough money by the time you conked out to do that then you were good because then 
you could go with Osiris. So it's kind of the reason or the thing that you're working towards your whole life, even though you can't own property or you're just a common person, you're technically a slave. Um, and they were okay with that as long as they could do these very basic things that Osiris has, you know, modeled for them. Yeah. And, and all of that's true. Um, right. We're, we're, approaching one of those situations where multiple things are true at the same time. Yeah. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And this is what I was mentioning earlier about myths are the stories that people tell themselves to better understand themselves. And that's a perfect example. Um, but we, we have to remember a, a couple things. Um, First of all, the archaeological evidence, to my knowledge, suggests that like the Great Pyramids of Giza weren't built by slaves. They were, and they, they were built by the poor, right? But they were essentially subcontracted workers that were paid through food and beer through social safety net programs, right? To build these giant monuments. Why? Because they believed in venerating their pharaoh. It wasn't a whip and lash that built the pyramids. It was love of Pharaoh, which is really difficult for us to to grasp or in our hyper-individualistic society. Um, they were happy. To, right. The, and, and, how could you be happy you know, like that? They are. You, you could be cynical and say that they were happy because the stories they were fed told them that that's what they had to do to be happy. And there is some truth to that. But you can also be a little bit naive and say they were happy because that's how they understood the, how the world worked. If they took care of Pharaoh, mm -hmm. then their lands would be taken care of, right? Um, the Nile would flood, they would have fresh fertile soil, and they would keep going. Yes. And they did have enough food and enough garments and, you know, they could afford to buy jewelry and they could afford to get mummified, which was a luxury. So there, yeah, there's not any evidence that they were, you know, uh, well, like, and, oppressed. And, and, and not just that too. We have to, we have to recognize that, especially the farther back in time you go, if you go too far, you get to hunter gatherers and it's different. But as far as like human civilizations go, the farther back in time, the more and more a sense of duty mattered. Right. Which, I mean, we do understand and recognize today, but again, we're, we're in a hyper-individualistic society. And so, the, you know, the, the terms of our exchanges together have kind of changed. Um, but not just, not just that sense of duty, too. Um, and this will lead me to Osiris being cut up into a dozen different pieces by his brother, Seth. Um, Egyptian mythology also hinged and was predicated on this life wasn't the important one. It was because you had to prepare, but we're talking about three to four thousand years of society and culture that spent every living moment preparing for death because today we say you can't take it with you 
So spend your money, take the vacation, buy the car. It, blah, blah, blah. it was the complete opposite for the Egyptians. Thought uh, you could, right. and they literally um, they took it with them. And and here's here's where it gets particularly fascinating. Um, the Egyptians had a multi-soul system. Um, you know, depending on what sources you look at and what archaeological evidence you look at, you're going to get a variety of different numbers, but there's at least two or three. There's the Ba, the Ka, um, you know, various different words for your soul, and they each have a different nuance and mean a different thing. One of them was confined to your sarcophagus and your tomb. One of them was confined to the Duat, the underworld, and was the, the messenger back and forth right one of them was one that could leave the tomb on certain times right but that's why um right the, the pyramids and things like that they, they weren't symbols of mortal authority any more than they were historic monuments and temples to go visit and take care of the souls of the deceased right the living were expected going back to duty the living had a duty to go back and leave food for their deceased for their ancestors otherwise their ba wouldn't have any replace um replacement nourishment right replenishment there um right you had to have the tomb constructed in a certain way otherwise that various different pieces of your soul couldn't travel the routes that they needed to travel to reunify because that was the whole idea was that if you did things right the various different pieces of you could reintegrate and you could continue your life after death right this is the interesting thing for me is that you either continue in your eternal life or you're gone and that's yes. it so the idea wasn't i'll be punished if i don't do the right thing it was that fear of non-existence that all humans have and avoiding that by doing all of these things which is a whole different type of motivation than the one that we're familiar with in america which is christianity which is avoiding hell avoiding punishment but instead you just want to exist, which is a little more basic. Yeah. Um, well, and, and not just that too. So let's let's take an analytical view for a couple minutes about what all that means. Because I, I had this light bulb um, last year, the year before, when I was revisiting my Egyptian histories. Um, We have to remember that the Egyptians were masters of anatomy. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to mummify properly, right? The first couple of mum mummies that were created were probably happenstance and accidental. But once the Egyptians figured out that, like, it can happen, right, they, they were master surgeons. They knew where the pineal gland was. They knew how to extract the brain. They knew which organs you could leave in and which ones you had to be had to take out they knew which ones served which functions to a degree right way more than we give them credit for at least um 
I think they also recognized the basics of human psychology too. And you get a taste of it in the myth of Osiris, but you get a fuller grasp of it by understanding that the Egyptians understood that you were multiple people inside of you. The same way Carl Jung would say you have various different fractures of archetypes inside your psychology, right? You have uh, the collective conscious, you have your shadow, you have your unconscious, your subconscious, all of those different things. Um, the focus then for the Egyptians is integration, Right. And, and here I'm thinking like technically, psychologically, psychological integration to take, as Carl Jung would say, to integrate your shadow into your personality. So that way you can get it under control. So going to the myth of Osiris, for instance, um, it's the devotion of a stabilizing persona like Isis as a spouse and the actions of the sun that piece Os Osiris back together again where he can finally cross over into the Duat and assume his mantle as king of the underworld, king of the dead, right? Now, that means two things. First of all, um, you need a partner. No one can go through this life alone, right? Um, as someone that's just recently married, I can assume that you appreciate that, right? That by having two people working together as stabilizers and limiting principles for the other, you can become more than what you are now, right? As a, a whole greater than the sum of its parts. Now, secondarily, what's the symbol for horus well if you write him in hieroglyphs right he's he's the hawk of the falcon he's has a specific symbol um but the eye of horus is one of like the holiest symbols in egyptian iconography right outside of like the ankh which is the symbol for life um now the eye of horus what is it, it, it it's its eyes it represents attention right and this goes back to the the tradition thing right if you pay the right attention to the right things you can integrate yourself the quote-unquote right way and live a righteous life that earns you that spot in the field of reeds as opposed to damning yourself into oblivion Yeah, I'm thinking on an even more practical level, you had to have a social system in general to coordinate your mummification. If you didn't have someone, that wouldn't happen, and then you're done. So having, you know, whoever it was, you needed someone there at the end of your life to do that, whether it's your mother because you're dying young or, you know, so having... You cannot 
continue on with your eternal life without someone to facilitate that for you, which is a transfer of power a little bit. And that, you know, we don't have in Christianity. Once you die, it's up to you, you know, of what you did before. Um, and having that responsibility passed to another person is a very deep relationship. Well, and, and not just that, too. The Egyptians understood that even after death, if your body became destroyed, your ba and your ka and the other parts of your soul had no place to come back to. Right. Right. And, and so, so again, that's, a, that's another layer of emphasis of, of integration, right? It, it may be at a more literal level, but if you can take anger and joy and humility and jealousy and all of these various different personality traits to the Egyptians, it took doing things the quote unquote right way in order to provide the opportunities for all the disparate parts of you to integrate back together. And it is that integration back together that is the culmination of the life after this life. Right. Similarly to where um, Carl Jung would say something along the lines of You know, to get a handle on your aggression or depression or anxiety, whatever negative attributes from the shadow of your psyche they may be, right? Ignoring those facets of your psyche doesn't absolve you of the negative consequences of those things. What does is recognizing that they are a part of you so that way you can handle it and get it more or less under control. Right? That's why they say it. That's where the old phrase, um, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in war comes from. Because each of us, I mean, you know, think about it. We're we're evolutionarily designed to kill and eat things. That's how we survive as a species, right? I tell my students this all the time. Every single one of you in this classroom has the ability to do great harm, whether you think you have it in you or not, right? You're evolutionarily designed to. So ignoring that doesn't do you any favors. Because you might find yourself in a situation where you get pushed over the edge and now you get tunnel vision, you see red, you black out, you have that extreme fit of aggression, and you might do terrible things, right? Um, being harmless doesn't make you virtuous, right? Right. An axe murderer without an axe is still a psychopath, even though they're not capable of doing harm. Right. What does make you a virtuous person is recognizing that you can do great harm and getting it under control so you voluntarily don't. Right. It is that integration. Yeah, I'm thinking of what avoidant behaviors would actually look like. And it would be, you know, I don't want to confront this issue. What am I going to do to avoid this issue? 
and it is, you know, be mean to anyone who brings it up, change topic, avoid seeing people, like all of that isolation and behaviors that you would do that would get you kicked out of the group, which we talk about a lot as the one thing that our social, the evolution of our social behaviors are to stay within the group Mm -hmm. pretty much at any cost. So if you spend time, you know, avoiding, hiding, isolating, that's what's going to happen. So this is a key for ancient cultures staying, you know, you would not want to start getting into the habit of avoiding. Right. And, and that's not just a subjective interpretive understanding of that, right? All of the avoidant behaviors that you mentioned all have negative psychological consequences. They're all avenues to anxiety and depression, right? Um, a good cognitive behavioral therapist, when someone comes to them with a crippling fear or anxiety, one of the first things that they'll tell you that you need to do is when you feel this anxiety, don't run away, right? Because what does that do? That creates that pattern of behavior that reinforces that avoidant behavior, which only further triggers your anxiety and makes your anxiety sessions worse. Oh, yeah. You have right. to accept, I mean, the key is acceptance of those negative emotions. And then the next steps you take from there, you're, you know, at that point, you're good. You're like, I have anxiety. It makes me nervous to go to the grocery store. Being in crowds is scary. Now what? Um, I think that's, you know, like the AA cliche is the first step is admitting you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't do that, you're toast. Yeah, well, because then you can start to reflect and figure out, okay, why does going to the grocery store make me anxious? What it is, What is it about that that triggers this? And then you can start to healthily process those things, right? Anxiety stems from uncertainty. Like, like I guess by textbook definition, that's what anxiety is. It's the natural human response to uncertainty because, I mean, this is why people have a disposition to stay in an abusive relationship because human beings have that disposition to be comfortable dealing with a known discomfort than to take a chance at something uncertain because uncertainty is infinity it's literally everything else but this current situation it could be great but it could also kill you right and while that ratio might be super heavy to the it being great we have that negativity bias in us that drives us to recognize well if it's a one percent chance i might die that's enough to freak out over yeah it is anxiety is like the avoidant emotion because if you actually follow, like, you know, I'm afraid to go to the grocery store because I'm going to get shot by a crazy person, then that thought is scary. So you start avoiding, you know, you engage in your avoidant behaviors, which is not going, having a full on panic attack. You cannot think while you're having panic attack it is the perfect avoidant thing. Um, your body will shut itself down 
to leave that alone. Like dissociating all of those negative symptoms that we associate with anxiety are avoiding the thing that you're scared of. And the treatment usually, I mean, you think of phobia as like the ultimate anxiety, but the treatment is to say like, okay, if you got shot, what would actually happen to you? You know, what, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And actually going down the rabbit hole and saying like, okay, if like, what would that be like? What happens to people who get shot? Do people survive it? Because your anxiety says, if that situation happens to you, you will spontaneously combust and that's the end of your existence. Mm -hmm. That's like, this is it. This is the one thing that you cannot have happen because it could be, what is it? Is it bad? Are you scared of the pain? Are you scared of dying? Like, and then actually get to the thing that is the real issue because, um, you know, what you've done is you've taken a step away from the actual problem until you're scared of the grocery store and you've got to go all the way back down to find out what the actual problem is. It's usually something that's very reasonable and not something to be ashamed of. Um, being afraid of the grocery store is weird. Being afraid of dying is perfectly normal. Right. And, and I think um, you're spot on there with recognizing that the more you can cognitively map a situation, the easier it is to process and resolve it. And and I know it seems kind of obvious, but let's let's dig down that rabbit hole a little bit. Well, why is that? Well, by definition, you are eliminating those layers of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You're more narrowly defining the boundaries of whatever hypothetical experience it might be, which allows you to, by having those boundaries and limits, you can more effectively operate within them, right? Um, A perfect example of this is, right, so you have um, a securely attached four or five-year-old take him to the playground, a playground you've never been to before, in a town that you're not from, so you know that they don't know anybody there, right? And turn them loose and watch them play. I've I've seen this with my kids. It's fascinating, right? Because they do ever-expanding concentric circles of exploration to map the social environment that they're in. They'll go out, they'll stay close to you for a little bit until they get comfortable enough to recognize that they can venture out. And then they venture out, you know, just enough until they're uncomfortable because you're not close enough to save them from whatever hypothetical terror might be out there. And then they kind of circle back. And then once they realize that, once they have established those boundaries and limits by mapping that concentric circle, then they venture out a little bit farther and then a little bit farther and then a little bit farther. And next thing you know, they're comfortable getting out of sight from you because they know that they know the social environment well enough that if something happened, they could find you. Right. And now they're more comfortable and that anxiety goes away. Right. And there's all sorts of things that would, you know, get in the way or like single isolated incidences that could disrupt that exploration process, which happens all the time. And then, you know, the, what it comes down to is the cumulative effect of it going well this many times versus the, you know, sort of cognitive weight of that one time that didn't go well or the thing that you're afraid of not going well. Um, Cause I'm not afraid to go to the grocery store. I go all the time. Um, but if 
you know, something that I don't do often would be scarier because I don't have my past experiences to rely on to tell me what to expect, what's going to happen. Um, you know, who's going to be there. Cause I live in Portland. There's crazy drug addicts in my grocery store parking lot all the time. They go in and they start yelling and security escorts them out and then, you know, rinse and repeat. But for someone else, that's very scary. For me, it happens all the time. Um, they have security there. They plan for this. It's not a big deal. Um, nothing ever comes of it. They just have to leave because shoplifting and everything. So the, yeah, that would have been scary. But now that I've seen it so many times, I'm fine, which is like technically the, that process is desensitization. But if you're never sensitive to it in the first place and you just accept that this is something that happens, then I don't think there's a word for that. Just getting used to it, having that in your learning history um, where you would have to desensitize once you were sensitive to it. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the point where something is neutral to where something you're very sensitive to it. Um, which, which is interesting because if we define desensitization as thoroughly mapping probabilistic outcomes, right? You're kind of desensitized to something that people from other regions might find unsettling. Not because you're desensitized to it, but because your brain has mapped that out of the hundreds of times that you've gone to the grocery store, nothing has happened of note. Right? Now, if we define it that way, this would be a very interesting experiment to do. What is that ratio limit to instigate desensitization? Right. And obviously it would probably be bell curve shaped, like most things in, in psychological data tend to be. Um, you know, with the bulk of people landing in that middle of the bell curve, right? The 75%, the 80% or whatever, and then with the the five and ten percent outliers on the far sides. Um there are really good animal studies on that in behavior because ethically you could electrically shock rats and see what they do you can't do that to humans so not much applied research but there Mm -hmm. is a lot of you know if you shock a rat once um well typically you would pair that with like a green light and then they know that they're about to get shocked and what behavior are they doing when they realize that they're about to get shocked how many times does it take to condition that behavior typically it's once um they you know a single pairing of oh my god that green light means i'm going to get shocked is enough um so for very you know specific extremely painful um very clear start and stop punishers of pain um it takes only one time which is you know that happens to a lot of people where one bad experience and they can never go back um but a lot of times if you you know if you have that green light going constantly on and off in their cage. And then one time you pair the green light with the shock, they're not going to know that that's the signal that they're about to get shocked right away. They will eventually yeah, learn pairings, but because that, because that probability curve is going to be so low. Right. That... So they've done like truly, this is the number it took. 
of pairings before. We saw this many pairings, and then it took this long for you know the for it to no longer be paired. Um, and they are you know very mathematic, very dry, not much to really because you can't apply that to a human. Um, because we don't know how many times I could not tell you, I could not estimate how many times I have been to the grocery store without getting, you know, whatever I'm afraid is going to happen at the grocery store. Um, and yeah, so like the broader application of that would be PTSD and, you know, what does that look like? Who's going to get it? How can we predict this? Um, but you just don't know how many, you know, green lights haven't been paired with the shock. And then once it is, or how many it will take. Um, but being in a brand new situation and something traumatic happening, it's going to be a pretty good one. Um, any like, natural disaster where your environment is incredibly changed tends to be a lot more traumatic um, because the environment physically looks different. So you're. Yeah. And, and, and that, so like uh, I had a few conversations with my brother-in-law about transition out of the incarceral system. Um, and how destabilizing an experience like that is because literally every single facet of your environment, physically, your social environment, even your day-to-day routines, how do you do laundry? How do you brush your teeth? How do you get your meals? How do you go to sleep? How do you wake up? Every single one of those things fundamentally changes all at the same time, right? And how do people handle that? How do you, what's the method for getting back in? What's the method for integrating psychologically when something that destabilizing happens and integrating into the new environment, right? Um, And so like you mentioned, you know, how do we prevent PTSD? I don't think any studies like that would help us prevent PTSD because there's inherent risk in everything. Being alive means by definition to assume risk of not living, right? We're all playing the calorie chasing pinball game, right? Where you have to keep the points up by a certain amount within a certain amount of time. Otherwise you expire type thing. Um, it's game over, man. Um, but rather, I think it would have profound application in treatment, right? If we can roughly give an educated guess as to your golden ratio, right, then we could facilitate a series of events to skew it back to that healthy number to where you become, for lack of better terms here, desensitized to that trauma again. How many, a woman is assaulted on the street corner by a man. How many men need to hand her flowers at a street corner? Right. To become Exactly. Right. And and, and I'm not, not necessarily talking about, you know, creating these fabricated situations, these false facsimiles of real life with which to psychologically engineer people back into stability and happiness. Because the second you go out into the real world, you're going to have an experience again, and that's going to undo all of that work. But if you know that this thing triggers you, the 
biological and therefore psychological responses that you have to that triggering are X, Y, and Z, right? Then what do you need to do in the real world to offset that to where if a bad experience does happen, it doesn't break you? Right. It's... Yeah, they the best studies on like who gets PTSD and who doesn't are for natural disasters because all, everyone experiences trauma at the exact same time. We have pretty good baseline for when it occurred. Um, and technically, you can only get diagnosed with PTSD six months after the trauma. Otherwise, it's not post-traumatic stress. It's acute traumatic yeah. stress. So seeing who develops acute traumatic stress symptoms, who doesn't. And then which one of those persists past what we would assume is like normal, you know, it's okay to be freaked out if something bad happens for six months and then suddenly it becomes a diagnosable, um, you know, this is an illness now, which is a pretty short window. Um, and obviously the, you can vary it. Um, the I think the DSM-5 just says six months, but, you know, who's to say? But it's weird. It's to, it feels arbitrary a little bit to say, you know, if you're still scared, you know, you fall off your bike. If you're scared of your bike the next time you get on it, that is completely normal. If you're scared of the bike the hundredth next time you get on it, number one, you probably haven't. If you're still scared of it, you're probably avoiding it now. You're not using it. Um, but having, yeah, at what point is it wrong if something bad happens, if something traumatic happens? That okay, now we have to fix this. Now we have to, you know, apply psychology to it to, you know, whatever. Now it's broken. Yeah, to to un unpathologize those things. That's right? weird. Well, and and that's like that's what's interesting in trying to analyze these mythologies is because to a degree that's what we're looking at. We're looking at fossilized cultural elements to how people in their context a decided the boundaries of socially acceptable and individually acceptable behavior because it's it's kind of a sliding scale i would say that there are objective extremes but in between it's it's fair game um and then how did they deal with pathologizing things right so um because i don't know that much about egyptian medicine or like you know we know like in the past it was demons your blood was unbalanced we have to get rid of some blood um your humors are off you are being cursed by god sorry about that should have done something different. Um, I don't know if you, you know, got cancer or something, or you had some type of horrible disease. Um, I'm pretty sure in Egypt that would go straight to that was a god that did that. Um, definitely on a large scale, you know, plague. But no, but you level as well. Yeah, you're right. They. And this is this is why I like the definition of mythology as the stories people tell themselves about themselves and their place in the world, because 
that's what those myths do. They create a rough toolbox of dispositions to reality and other people and sets of behaviors that don't guarantee success, but help point you in the right direction, right? If you behave this certain type of way, all of our stories say this is the potential negative thing that might happen to you. If you behave in this type of way, our stories say that this is the potential good thing that might happen to you, right? Um, you know, going going back. Go, go ahead. Now I'm thinking that, like, the way that they visualize death, maybe getting sick with cancer isn't that inherently sad, tragic, depressing. Oh my God, my husband's dying. You know, that maybe it doesn't have as big of a negative impact having a family member die or dying yourself because of how firm and secure and, you know, kind of easy it was to ensure that you had the all of the things that you needed set up before you died in order to ensure that your eternal whatever was okay. Um, yeah, so maybe they didn't care as much. Well, I mean, reduce the severity of trauma and tragedy. Mm, right. Right. If, if we're going back to our um, probability curve, Right, that lower limit, it raises it a little bit. As far as like depth of the of the negative negative thing. Um well and, and so like you know, going back to Osiris and Horus when the things that you're doing aren't working or something has happened and you're disintegrated you know meaning not psychologically integrated not like atomized down right in, in, the, in the physics term um then what it takes is the quote-unquote proper attention to pay attention to things in the quote-unquote right way to adapt and become the new king in the new environment, right? Um, so, like, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to do an Aristotelian syllogism here. If I am not my father, and these are not my father's times, therefore, slash, then. If I approach these times in the persona of my father, it's not going to be beneficial, or at least not going to be optimized. We can use that term there. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't nuggets of wisdom and truth in my father's disposition that I can adapt to apply to my times in my personality right the Pinocchio story you can take what are still good healthy boards in the ship in the belly of the whale 
and fashion a new series of beliefs and values based on the functional parts of your traditional values and beliefs. So that way they're better optimized for your current context, right? This, this is why this is why I like Aristotle's um, answer for you know how do you, how to live a good life. Well, by definition, living a good life is doing the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons with the right people, and like he's intentionally vague about all of that because i'm not you i don't live in your skin in your environment i don't have your history so i can't tell you what's right because what's right for me is going to be slightly different than what's right for you but if we do recognize that each set of parameters for our existence does have an optimized disposition towards it and that's the definition of the quote-unquote right way to do things. Then it applies. And I think myths are how human beings transport that information intergenerationally. Right? So, like, I, um, I was thinking about this last weekend. I was fortunate enough to uh, go out with a, a group that we've try to participate in as often as we can and we haven't very well but now that the kids are older we can do it a lot more often um and we did a paranormal investigation of a local museum i'm not at liberty to say which one yet um but once i'm allowed to i will um but you know so i i did the i'm the historian of the group so i did a lot of the historical research you know what people were involved at this place um, what events did they have? Um, and, and that that triggered my thinking to, you know, by looking up who these people were and what they might have done, what I'm doing is I'm retelling their story from my current understanding of the situation, right? I'm taking my current set of beliefs and values and analyzing what we think we know about those people's lives through it. Right. That, that's, that's being, being a, a historian, this is really tricky. Uh, the, the logical fallacy is called presentism, right? Slavery is a, is a perfect topic for this. Right. We can condemn the founding fathers for owning slaves all we want. But the fact of the matter is our understanding of morality today is functionally different than it was back then. And it's illogical. It's a logical fallacy to judge a historical agent and character by the values and morals and beliefs of the current present time because they, they might not apply. Right. Now I'm thinking, what parallels are there between a priest and a historian? Um, not a, like, obviously there's absolutely nothing similar between, like, a modern day priest, but like a, you know, the priests for Egypt were like a baron, essentially. Like, they were extremely powerful, extremely influential people. 
who are retelling stories and they is that the same thing as writing a history book um basically i would say yes now a good historian will try to be dispassionate about things right and will set of ethics for sure right and, and <laughs> will will we'll, we'll also build in a recognition of our shortcomings right so to to not get too postmodern with it um we have to recognize that any any history myth religion whatever it's it's a story and that story is not the thing it's an artificial reconstruction of the thing right and and by definition then it's going to be incomplete it's going to be flawed in some capacity but sometimes it's the best we have right it's like um dan carlin does the hardcore history podcast um in his five-part series on persia and um the battle between xerxes and leonidas at thermopylae is fantastic because he mentions in all of the historians that he reads to prepare for these um you know herodotus the ancient Greek historian was telling stories. He was a screenwriter, if you want to think about it that way, right? So there's going to be natural embellishments, whether intentional or unintentional doesn't matter. But if we get rid of Herodotus because he's not correct or he's not true, what do we have left? Hardly anything at all, right? So we have to take these incomplete stories, however flawed they might be, and use them as the basis for our understanding. But that that's, leads us back full circle to, to what we were talking about Rome and Dr. Mary Beard earlier um, and why I appreciate her book is she brings up and reminds us numerous times that this historical event that we're studying from the direct words of the people that were there those people that were eyewitnesses and participants in this event that invoked this mythology or this value or this belief were doing so from their current contextual limitations and their current biases and their current hopes and things like that, right? So if we're in, right, if we're Julius Caesar in the 60s BC, either attending to or giving a performance about um, the founding of Rome and the Romulus and Remus myth. What are we doing? We're retelling that story in such a way as to embellish it enough to make it applicable to how we think we understand we're supposed to be in the world. Right. Because the... First thing is what happened, and the second thing is, and now how should I feel about that? And we're not explicitly asking ourselves that question. Um, I'm 
the example I'm thinking of is I tried to read a book on Alexander the Great because I think that's just a great story. I watched a lot of documentaries about it. And then when I read a book about it, they don't have to edit anything for TV. So it can be as X-rated as needed. And I learned a lot about the sexual proclivities of these people that I did not care to. And I was like, okay, never mind. I need the G-rated version of all this <laughs> because <and that> right <laughs> then did not finish the book, could not get over like, and the author made a point to say like, this was normal. You, they had like hordes of 15 year old boys that they would bring in and that was normal. And it's like, okay, never mind. I'm done. I don't need to know anything else besides, you know, the nice fluffy things, but there's that editing that happens when things are too gross or, you know, horrible. Um, like, and it, you know, we just, someone will read that myself and not finish it and try to forget about it. Um, well, and and, they'll and, treat and it I, in a different language, which changes things. I, I think two big points, um, cause we're coming up on time for either an end or another break. Um, First of all, yes, there, there is editing. Sometimes it's even unintentional. I only have so much time in the day. I only have so many days in a week, so many weeks in a month, so many months in a year, right? So by definition, I can't look at everything, right? So either it's by willing choice, hey, I'm going to look at these sources and use them as a sampling pool with which to draw my conclusions, or in the case of like Herodotus, we don't have any other options for sources to use. But by definition, that either imposed by us or imposed on us limitations of our sources are editing choices, and they're going to change the nature of the story that we can tell. Um, and the second thing, too, is I need to, I feel like I need to emphasize you mentioned things that are bad or gross or taboo per our current understanding of the boundaries of socially acceptable behavior, right? And as that, it's called the Overton window, as that Overton window shifts, right? So the Overton window is, is a, um, a term used to describe what is acceptable to be talked about in public, right? As that Overton window shifts, that's going to change the focal point of attention for the current society on anything from the past or anything from that current time to any particular point in the past and change that shifting of the Overton window shifts what we can pay attention to and our shifting of what we can pay attention to shifts how we tell our stories and how we retell our stories too. Yeah. For me, I put that book down because I did not want to be judgmental and I couldn't help it <laughs> uh, because, you know, I wanted the story and I couldn't get past my own, like, ew, that's gross, which, you know, that happens. Um, I think we do need part two. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with it. Um, do a different culture next time. Right. Yeah. We focused a lot on Egypt this time. So maybe we can do a multi-part series and just bring in a couple different myths from a couple different major cultures and just play around and explore with it. Absolutely. Older and a little more recent, maybe. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Yeah, see you then.